Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 6. I'll say a couple things about this message before we dive into it. Uh, I actually preached this message uh, in Nairobi about a year ago as part of a series of messages to pastors. I did probably the, my, the favorite, my most favorite series I've ever done was the series to the uh, Nairobi pastors on the four passages in Paul's epistles where he appeals to the uh, marriage metaphor to explain something about our relationship with Christ. And uh, he does that four times, and I did a message from each one of those times. And it's really fascinating to see how he uses that metaphor in different ways. So here's one of the times uh, in Romans chapter 7 where he uses the marriage metaphor. And <clears throat> I am uh, just continually amazed by the way Paul speaks about our relationship with Christ and he does so in um, in ways that are are mind-boggling, ways that it's really hard to wrap our minds around what he's actually saying. And yet, if we want to understand him and want to understand how we relate to Jesus, that's exactly what we have to do. We have to say, okay, what is Paul saying? And then how do I wrap my mind around that to say, no, this is reality and I need to conform my thinking to this. And it's not just, I mean, sometimes it's difficult because maybe we don't want to admit it or we don't want to believe it, but this is also difficult because it involves really just stretching our, our minds as to what reality is, um, who I am, how I exist with Christ and trying to understand what Paul says so that we can believe it and then live it out. So, um, you know, this passage and the other passages in the, with the marriage uh, metaphor and many other passages in Paul are hard to understand um, because our relationship with Christ is so different from anything else. And yet investing time and effort to understand it is precisely what we need to do if we want to take God's word seriously and live out the reality of our, our union with Christ. So uh, Romans chapter seven, before I read the passage, I want to Talk about some themes that we will see in this passage. Um, I want to ask you two questions. Who are you? That is, what is your identity? Who are you at the core of your being? And second, who or what do you belong to? Who are you and who or what do you belong to? How would you answer that to yourself? And, and I want you to consider that those two questions are very much related. They're related because God has made us for community. He has made us for belonging. And the way in which we define who we are, the way in which we have an identity is by belonging to something. You ever notice even those people who want to be you know, rugged individualists and do things all on their own end up looking exactly like everybody else who wants to be a rugged individualist and do everything on its own, right? Because we want to belong to something and that's how we know who we are. That's the way God made us because he made us for relationship with him in his image to be like him. So if I ask you who you are, you will probably tell me something that you belong to. You know, I am an American or or maybe you'd say, I'm from of this political party. I belong to that. Or, or maybe you're wearing the T-shirt the, the, the that has your, your favorite football, football team on, and it's really clear who you belong to. Right, Michael? Right. <laughs> um, 
I didn't say that just because of you. It's, it's written here in my notes. Um, and we, we feel like we belong. That's our team. And when they win the game, we say we won, even though our part of the whole thing was eating nachos on the sofa, right? We have an identity there. We belong, and, and that's how we know who we are. And part of the way belonging works is because whatever we belong to has a story that becomes our story, right? Nations have stories of how they fought for independence and they won. And even the people who come along generations later, it's still their independence day, their story. Families have stories and the children who are born into that family take that story as part of their own. And through those stories of what we belong to, we learn who our heroes are. We learn who our enemies are. These stories in which we find ourselves are like lenses through which we see the world. And with those lenses come certain expectations. If I belong to a family that excels in athletics, then I better be the star of the team when it comes my turn to play. If I belong to an elite school, I better show my friends how smart I am. If I'm a businessman and I belong to an important company, then I better earn a lot of money, or maybe I don't really belong. You see how this works? We can feel like an imposter if we can't live up to the expectations of what we belong to. And whatever we belong to can turn into a cruel master that crushes us and sucks the life out of us by making us think that if only we try harder, only strive a little bit more, eventually we can get there. That's the background for this passage in Romans 7. And as I read this passage, see if you can notice some of these themes. See if you can notice why I did that introduction for this passage. So Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man. Literally, that text actually says if she belongs to another man while her husband is alive. She's called an adulteress if she belongs to another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us in, in captivity, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We pray. Our God, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage. Lord, give us the mental energy, the desire, the ability to wrap our minds around what you are saying here in your word, that we may 
learn how to live in light of this awesome thing that the Son of God has come down in human form, taken on our nature so that we may be united to him, that we may know him in a deep way, that our lives may conform to his life, that his spirit may be at work in us, the spirit of adoption, to belong to him, and that his life would be manifested in us. Lord, teach us through your word that we may live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, I should say that this is a, a difficult passage. There are many, many issues that we could talk about. And so you might come away thinking, well, why didn't he say this about this? But it's because there's just so much in here. I've got to kind of get down to the essence of what's going on in this passage. And I think what's basically going on in this passage is it's about how we transition from belonging to the law. There's a kind of belonging to the law to belonging to Christ. Outside of Christ, we belong to the law. All of us do. But there's a transition that happens in believing the gospel that we belong to Christ. And you see, whatever we belong to outside of Christ, uh, behind that reality, whether it's a school, a business, um, a team, whatever we belong to, underneath that reality of what we belong to is a belonging to the law. The law manifests itself in a variety of different ways of things that we could belong to. We belong, <clears throat> whatever company we belong to, behind that there's a belonging to the law. Whatever school we belong to, behind that there's a belonging to the law. And the law comes along as this captor, this cruel taskmaster, and says, you're nothing unless you measure up. This is why we can be a slave to our performance, right? We obsess over sales figures or grades or the number of likes we get on our social media posts. This passage explains how Christ takes us from belonging to the law to belonging to Christ. And I want to look at three things here. I want to look at one, how Christ breaks us free from the law. Two, the kind of identity that we have in belonging to Christ. And then finally, how we actually live. So number one, how Christ breaks us free from the law. Now, before we get totally into how, we have to talk a little bit about why we need to be free from the law. And let me just briefly situate this passage in the context of Romans. Romans chapter 6 explains our identity in Christ. It explains the kind of people we are. And if you think about it, but that passage opens with that question. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul says no. And the reason why we ought not to sin is because we're a different kind of person. We have a new identity. Something is different about us at the core of our being. We're changed. But um, we, we, there's something that will prevent us from living out that identity. The, as Romans 6 continues... We're supposed to live out that identity, right? We're supposed to present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. In other words, live according to who you are. There's something that prevents us from doing that. And that is if we are still living and acting as though we belong to the law. That won't work. We can't live out our identity in Christ 
if we are still bound to the law, living in a law-like way in other areas of our lives. So Romans 7 comes after Romans 6 to tell us how when we are united to Christ, not only do we have a new kind of identity, a new nature, we also are taken out from belonging to the law and now we belong to Christ. It explains that transition so that we can live according to our new nature in Christ. So we can present ourselves to God and to one another as those who are alive from the dead. So, so that's why we need to be free from the law because it's inconsistent with our identity in Christ to be living in a law-like law way. How did Jesus do this? How did he free us from the law? Well, the answer we see in this passage is through his death. If we're united to Christ, we share in his history. And as he died, so also we died to, to sin and to the law. Paul begins this passage with a, a general principle. The law has jurisdiction over someone as long as they live. And you understand this to be true, intuitively, because uh, you never see police going to a graveyard to serve an arrest warrant to you, right? <laughs> they never come and break up a funeral uh, and say, we need to take the guy in the casket. He needs to come with us. They just don't do that. That's not how it works. The law frees you, or I'm sorry, death takes you out of a certain realm. When you die, you die to a realm. It no longer has, something no longer has jurisdiction over you anymore. And in Christ, when he died, we die to the realm that the law had jurisdiction over, that it would condemn us, the realm that we would live as condemned people because we've broken that law. Christ's death takes us out from that realm, so we are no longer under its condemning jurisdiction anymore. Of course, it's not quite as simple as that illustration with the graveyard and the funeral home, is it? Because what we're talking about here is not our physical death, it is our spiritual death, which is even more real. And yet, when we are dead spiritually, we're made alive spiritually, we, that doesn't affect our physical life, at least right away. So what Paul wants to do then is give an illustration that, that allows for the complications that's going on here, where somebody can die and yet still be alive. And so Paul gives this illustration of a, a married woman who is not free as long as her husband lives. But then if her husband dies, she is free from the law of marriage that bound her to that, that husband. She is free then to belong to another. And then Paul relates that to the Christian life. Look there at verse four. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. That means the law no longer has its condemning jurisdiction over us through the body of Christ so that you may long, sorry, so that you may belong to another. Just as the woman is free to belong to another, so we are free to belong to another, having died to the law. And who do we belong to? It says, to him who has been raised from the dead. We belong to Christ and his resurrection glory. We belong to the risen and exalted Christ. 
we can belong to him and live out our union and identity with him because through his death, we are no longer bound to the law. Now, one of the keys to this passage is to recognize that when Paul is talking about being free from the law, he is not talking about, oh, good, I can finally go off and sin and it's not going to be a problem anymore. That's not the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about. Freedom to sin is the worst kind of slavery because we're slaves to our sinful desires. And outside of Christ, that's the only kind of freedom that people know. But the freedom that we're talking about here is a different kind of freedom altogether. It's not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. And freedom to belong to Christ and know him. And see, we can't belong to Christ and to the law at the same time. Just like the woman can't belong to to two husbands, right? The law and Christ are mutually exclusive. Because the law says, do this and you will live. If you don't do that. Christ says, come to me and I will give you life. All that I have, I'll share with you. They're two totally different modes of operation. We can't, we can't belong to both at the same time. It's one or the other. Christ frees us from the law away so we can belong to him and have life from him. Now, <clears throat> You'll, you'll notice that, uh, as I said before, Paul is using the metaphor of marriage here. And that gives us some indication as to why it is that he wants to take us from the law into, uh, into Christ. The, the metaphor of marriage explains why God wants to do that. And, and that's because what God wants from us is not simply that master-servant relationship which would be governed by law, right? If you master, you have servants, there's rules, and, and, and it's a law-like relationship where these rules govern that relationship. That's not the full picture of what God wants for us. He wants to relate to us more like a husband does to his wife, a relationship of intimacy, a relationship of closeness, where we know him deeply. And a relationship based on law just won't give you that. That's why we need to move from the relationship with, with the law, do this and you will live, to where Christ says, come to me and I will give you life. All that I have, I'll share with you. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean then that we have any less obligation to obey. When we're, we're in our relationship with Christ, we don't have any less obligation to to live for him and please him. It's just that it's not one where the law regulates how that works. It's a relationship where we know him deeply. Now, it strikes me when Paul is talking here that he's most likely, he has the exodus in mind when he writes this. The exodus is that event where God took his people to himself, where they would belong to him. If you read the book of Exodus, in order for Israel to be taken out of Egypt and belong to him, to be the, the wife of Yahweh, to be his bride, the relationship with Egypt had to be broken. And so the Bible speaks of the Exodus as actually a divorce, a divorce from Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, so that they would be taken from that 
uh, bondage to belong to another. I think that image of the Exodus, of God taking people out of Egypt in a, in a divorce-like way, breaking them from the bonds of Egypt so they belong to him, I think that's behind this passage where he is talking about how we are taken out from under the law to belong to Christ. And how does he do that? How does he take us out from under the law? Well, as I said before, by incorporating us into him so that when Christ dies, we die to the law. The law has jurisdiction over someone as long as they live, but in Christ, we die to the law so it no longer has ruling authority over us. It no longer has the relationship where it says, do this and you will live. Okay, so that's the first point. How Christ frees us from the law. And it does, he does that through his death. We are united to him and in him we die to the law. Now, the second point we need to see here, and this is a major theme as Paul develops this in his passage, is what kind of identity do we have in him? Okay? Taken out from under the law, he does that. But now, we've already talked about how there's a relationship between belonging and identity. What kind of identity do we have now that we belong to Christ? And what we need to see here is that it's unlike any other kind of identity. It's not just it's a different identity. Like maybe if you go from being really into you know, uh, sports and that's your identity to now being into academics, that would be a, a different identity, but of basically the same kind. This is a different way of having an identity in Christ. It's something totally different. And this is because every other identity that we have is ultimately an identity based upon the works of the law. Every kind of belonging, belonging to a nation, belonging to a sports team, belonging to a tribe, belonging to a school, is a kind of belonging that says you have to measure up and even if you, after you've measured up, you have to keep measuring up. Um, Tim Keller uh, gets at this so well in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And he has this quote in there that he's, he's found from uh, Madonna, who is worldly, but apparently on the outside, it appears very successful in her worldliness. But listen to what she says in a moment of honesty. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's why I'm always pushing myself. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I think that's a great description of what it means to have our identity based upon the law. We always have to work to prove ourselves. But identity in Christ is different for two reasons we see in this passage. First, it's different because we are first passive. Of course, we're active in our relationship with Christ. But before we're active, we're first passive. Look at verse four there. It says, you have died to the law 
or it could be better translated, you have been put to death to the law. In other words, it emphasizes that this is something that has been done to you by somebody else. This is not a command, you die to the law. You, you can't read this and apply this by thinking, you know, I really need to work harder to be dead to the law. That's not how you apply this command, this, this passage. It's, it's not a command. It is a statement of what has happened to you in your union with Christ. And how have we been put to death? Look there at verse four, through the body of Christ. And this is just fascinating. This is why it's really hard to, this is the, the work of trying to wrap our minds around this theology that Paul is saying here, that Paul intends to be very practical, but is so different than how we might think. Because Paul is talking about a death that is very, very real, and a death that is very, very yours. You have died but you have died through the body of Christ. It's not a physical death that he's talking about, but your death to sin, your death to the law, which is even more real than your physical death. You have died, Paul says, but it wasn't anything in your body that made it happen. You have died, but not in your body. You have died in the body of Christ. You have been put to death through the body of Christ. It's quite remarkable if we think about it. it. It underscores our passivity, doesn't it? Because death is very personal, right? You die when your body stops working. You can imagine somebody dying in your place, which is what Jesus did. That's not all he did. You also died in his body. And not only that, we then belong to the one who was raised from the dead, which is to say we have been also raised in his body. We die in his body. We are raised in his body. And this is not just speaking about one day you will be raised in your body and be like him. No, this is something that has already happened. We've already been raised in his body. This is not something we accomplish on our own. It's something that has been accomplished for you, but also it's very personal. It's been accomplished in you. Every other identity out there requires you to do something to get it, or if you've been born into it, it requires you to do something to keep it. Look at the Madonna quote I said earlier. Our identity in Christ is different. We are passive. Christ obtains this for us. First Corinthians 1.30, this was John Calvin's favorite verse. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is who you really are because you really are belonging to another. The second thing that makes this identity totally different than anything else, first is the passivity. The second is that we take on the identity of a person. And this is also a bit odd. But again, our union with Christ is unlike anything else in the world. In Paul's metaphor here, we used to belong to the law, right? That was our old identity, our old belonging. And behind every other belonging is a belonging to the law. And that means that every other identity out there involves a belonging to something that is ultimately impersonal. 
Marriage may be the only exception to that, where you do belong to a person, but then again, marriage points explicitly to our relationship with Christ. This kind of belonging to the law is, if you think about it, what we see playing out in America right now, right? A kind of belonging that creates divisions. Because if I belong to something that you don't like, then you're not going to like me. Or maybe we belong to the same thing, and now we're competing to see who really belongs. Right? And so belonging to the law is impersonal and ends in isolation. Because even though we belong with somebody else, at the end of the day, it doesn't actually give us the kind of community that we want. But we die to the law so that we can belong to a person. We belong to the risen Christ. We die to the law so that our identity can be not just in this thing, in Christianity, but in Christ himself, in the glorified and exalted Christ. We belong to him. Now let me just underscore this point with a very quick glance at another passage. And I think this is helpful because this passage helps explain what's going on here and because sometimes it's alleged that there's a contradiction between this passage and Romans 7. And I don't think that's the case at all. Philippians 3. I can, you can turn there and I can just explain what's going on. Remember in Philippians 3 where Paul talks about how he used to have confidence in the flesh? Confidence in the flesh is law-based identity. Law-based by law, belonging. I can belong to this thing because I can work hard enough in order to show that I belong. I can make it into this group. I can get people to let me on this team. I can make the grade. I can get the promotion. That's confidence in the flesh, and it leads to law-based belonging to give us that kind of identity that comes from our performance. And Paul said, if anybody else had confidence in the flesh, he had more, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness that comes from the law, blameless. Note there that Paul is telling us who he is by telling us what he belonged to, right? Who is Paul? A Pharisee. That is a member of this group. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. One New Testament scholar who I've learned so much from is a guy named Grant McCaskill. And he says that it's best in, in uh, Philippians 3 to think of these things that Paul is talking about that gave him confidence in the flesh, sort of like badges. You know what badges are, right? You accomplish something, you, you get a badge. And the badge shows that you belong. It is sort of like giving you access into this group because you got your badge, because you did something good. So now you belong to this group. And you can, you can get in there, and people will think that you belong there. And what does Paul say about all these badges? He says, all that I count as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul isn't just switching the kind of badges that he wants. And instead of taking off the, I persecuted the church badge, and putting on the, I built the church badge but still keeping essentially the badge system. That's not what Paul's doing. He's getting rid of the badge system, the identity that works according to the law. And instead he says, I want to know him. 
I want to know this person. He switches the identity that is based upon the law, law keeping and belonging according to the law to belonging to a person. It's a completely different way of having an identity. It's not just a different identity. It's a different way of having the identity. It's to belong to a person. Or another way is in Galatians, another way to get at this is in Galatians where Paul says that in his non-Christian days, he was, quote, advancing in Judaism far beyond my contemporaries. And then he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, he, he turns his back to the way of living that is an advancement, you know, climbing a ladder by getting different badges. And instead of that, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I've died to that way of thinking. But now Christ lives in me. Friends, the truth in Romans 7 and Philippians 3 and Galatians 2, it's so important. Because even though we have trusted Jesus by faith, we know him, even though that happens, it is so easy for us to return to a law-based identity. It's easy to, as Paul says, begin by the Spirit and then try to be perfected by the flesh. There's always a temptation to gravitate toward that law-based identity, to try to advance in Christianity. And that's not what God intends for us at all. I think Sinclair Ferguson put it so well when he said, the glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sin." But our greatest temptation is to mistake, and mistake is to try to smuggle character into God's work of grace. How easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for our justification. Paul, but Paul's teaching is that nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. And for our purposes here, we could say that that's not true simply narrowly of justification, but more broadly of our whole identity in Christ. We have that identity passively. It's not something that we have to fear losing. And that identity is in a person, so we can't advance in it. I'll say a little something about my journey. I told you that I preached this message first to a group of pastors in Nairobi. And I shared some of my story as a pastor. I was a pastor for seven years. And, and at first, it was not difficult to, uh, um, I'll, I'll say, that at first it was easy to not find my identity in what I did. Because my church was a mess. <laughs> because other people had messed it up. And I was the guy with the really messed up church. And I would go to pastor's meetings and people would be like, oh, there's Mike with the messed up church. Let's all take him out to lunch. And it was great. <laughs> but by God's grace, eventually the word began to have an impact on the church. And it wasn't as messed up anymore. And people were converted, which was wonderful in so many ways. But then there was the challenge not to let my identity get wrapped up in the state of the church. And then I would go to pastor's meetings and I would wonder, is my church as good as their church? Do I really belong here? And you might be 
expecting me to say, well, and then I understood the gospel and all that changed. Except that's not quite how it happened. I knew the gospel all along. I knew that living that way was, was completely wrong. And yet there's always a struggle in order to, to not let that happen. I remember I would, I would sometimes as a pastor get very disappointed when a new family that I, I thought was going to come didn't come back. Or I remember one time I was so excited that a certain person was there and then I saw him fall asleep in the sermon. And that was God's grace to let me know that I could not put my identity in things of the flesh. Nobody's asleep here, so I can say that. <clears throat> okay. Third point. How then do we live? We've seen that our identity in Christ is different than any other kind of identity because he takes us from the law and brings us into Christ as a person. How then do we live? Um, notice the result of belonging to the resurrected Christ in verse 4. We belong to the one who was raised from the dead, and see there, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit for God. See, this isn't the kind of freedom that allows us to say, well, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter. No, this is the kind of freedom that we do bear fruit for God. But not in a law-like way where you have to produce this much each week or you get in trouble. In a way that has his spirit in us producing that fruit. Now, there's some debate as to what Paul means when he's... Well, there's not really debate as to what he means. There's a debate as to the metaphor he's using, bear fruit. What's that talking about? It's possible, some think, that Paul is still thinking in terms of the marriage metaphor. One Puritan pastor puts it this way. As a wife brings forth children through her union with her husband, so also believers bring forth fruit through their union with Christ. It's possible that the marriage metaphor is still governing this part of, of verse 4 in order that we may bear fruit for God. He's still thinking in terms of the marriage metaphor, fruit being children. And just as a wife could never have a child all on her own and say to her husband, look what I did, so also it's impossible for believers to produce works and then show them to Christ and say, aren't you proud of me? No, the, the fruit that pleases God can only come about as we engage with Christ in the relational bonds that he established. He creates the union. We die in his body. We are raised in his body. Our union with Christ is something that he does. And through that union, we bear fruit. Paul restates the same idea in verses 5 and 6. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, that is, living in the law-based sinful identity, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us in bondage, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code was a relationship with God dependent upon our ability to keep the law. The new way of the Spirit is the spirit to produce fruit in us. 
Paul is building off of what uh, Ezekiel said in chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, uh, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And notice the passivity here. I will put my, on our part, not on God's part. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that God is predicting a relationship of belonging. You are my people. I am your God. And this relationship will bring forth fruit. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey. And this is what Paul is saying is now fulfilled for us in Christ. The contrast between the written code and the spirit is, among other things, a contrast between internal and external. The code is something external to us. It exists outside of us. It is impersonal. Everything depends on us keeping it. The spirit is inside of us. We learn in the next chapter of Romans that it is the spirit of adoption, that he is the spirit of adoption, the one who makes us to belong to him and cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is Christ's cry, and it becomes our cry when his spirit is put inside of us. The spirit causes the relational turning towards God through which the fruit is produced in our lives. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit prays on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit works that relational closeness by which we know Him. It is not the Spirit's role. It is not, please believe this, to give us that extra oomph we need to raise our moral game so we can finally live the victorious Christian life. That's a Catholic view of the Spirit. That's not a Christian view of the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is the one who is the Spirit of Christ, who works the life of Christ in our hearts, that Christ is known. Christ in you is the hope of glory, Paul says. Paul also says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. Now, there's much more we could say here, but I want to just end with a couple of specific application points. But application points are difficult. It's hard to get real practical in this truth without reverting back to the law-based way of thinking, right? Because if you want to say, okay, tell me what I need to do. Well, that's not quite the point. And yet on the other hand, looking at this truth should lead us to do all sorts of things. I think the key is to keep that marriage metaphor governing the way we think of application. And so let me give you three points of application governed by the marriage analogy. First, because we belong to him, we should pursue relational intimacy with him. Remember, our belonging is to a person. That's why the marriage metaphor works so well here. So the Christian faith should not be about advancing in Christianity as you would advance in your education or in your career. It's not about that. It's about knowing a person more deeply and more intimately because he has first known you. 
As Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to lay hold of the one who has laid hold of me. And this is why prayer is so incredibly important in your Christian life. If you don't speak to your spouse, your marriage will flounder. If you don't speak to Christ, in what sense then do you really belong to him? Christ wants to be with us. He has come. He has taken on our nature. He has lived a perfect life. He has suffered and died in our place. He has rose again and given his spirit to us so that we can know him, so that we can belong to him. So draw near to him as a person. This is what it means to serve, not in the oldness of the written code, but the newness of the spirit. The spirit's role is to make Christ real in our hearts. So pursue relational intimacy with him. Second, it's good to have structure in our Christian life and to obey the law in order to serve this relational goal. That in order to serve the relational goal is the key. Again, think of this in terms of marriage. Sometimes, especially after people first get married, they have the mistaken idea that in order to have a good marriage, everything has to be spontaneous. So they don't want to structure anything. They don't want to schedule dates together or anything like that. But after you've been married for a while and responsibilities and pressures mount, sometimes the most relationally close, the, the, the most relational thing you can do is schedule time to be with your spouse, right? Also, sometimes husbands and wives would create rules for what's okay or not okay to, to do. Um, Rules for transparency in spending or transparency uh, in how they relate to people of the opposite sex with texting or email or something like that. This structure and these rules can be a great help to marriage if they're done for the sake of the relationship and not as an end in themselves. They're not an end in themselves. So if your spouse says to you, I feel like you're distant, you can't say, well, look, honey, I've kept all the rules, so I don't know what your problem is. Because the rules aren't an end in themselves. You can't ever think that keeping the rules is going to earn you something. Look, I've kept date night for three weeks. You owe me. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You can't earn the affection of your spouse by keeping the rules. In the same way, it's good for us to have structure in our Christian life. It's good for us to have commitments to read our Bibles every day or to pray every day. And there might be times where we schedule this and even keep track of how often we did it so that we can't think, yeah, I read my Bible every day, but you really mean two days in the last six months. Furthermore, God has given us rules that we must follow. They're not optional. He tells us to flee sexual immorality. He tells us not to forsake the weekly gathering of, the, of his people. We need to obey these rules, but not as ends in themselves. They're there to guard the relationship. They're there to guide the relationship. In that sense, there's no tension between rules and relationship. The rules are there to lead us into the relationship. Finally, expect tension as we live in between the now and the not yet. The marriage metaphor is helpful here as well, because Paul uses the marriage metaphor differently in different passages. 
Sometimes he uses it, as in this passage, to talk about how we are already belonging to Christ. It's something we have now. Other times, he uses the marriage metaphor to talk about how we will be joined to him on the day that he returns, and now we're only betrothed. Both are true. We belong to him now. We are irrevocably his. And yet the fullness of what it means to be his is not yet revealed. There's a sense where we're only engaged. We're awaiting the final consummation. And because of that now and not yet, expect there to be awkward moments when your feelings don't match what you know to be true. And the circumstances of your lives don't match the fact that you actually belong to the king of kings. If I belong to the king of kings, then my life would not be so hard. Well, that's because the full reality of what it means to belong to the king of kings has not yet been revealed. So we need a realism about how severe sin is in our lives, about the pool of idolatry, about the way the fall leaves even our bodies broken. We need realism about that. And we need a faith-filled optimism about the fact that God's Spirit living in us will do amazing things. And our past failures don't condemn us because he breaks us free from the law. And we look forward to the day when he returns and we see him and then become like him because we see him as he is. We need both of those. So who are you? Who do you belong to? We are always going to belong to something. That's how God made us. In our sin, we belong to the law, and it rules over us. But Christ has come. He has died and rose again that we may belong to him and have our identity in him. Let's pray.